Hello and welcome to another episode of Worked Up, the podcast where you learn to navigate the workplace, business, and your career with a little more ease and a lot less angst. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beck, and we are joined via Zoom all the way from sunny Los Angeles by the one and only Jared Blitz. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I will say it's not that sunny today. It's uh, We're dealing with another one of these atmospheric rivers. So it's been a, a rainy winter for us in LA, but hopefully out of it soon. Yeah. I don't listen when people in LA complain about the weather. I think, I think. You shouldn't. You definitely shouldn't. Yeah, I know. You guys have it really good most of the time. So I don't feel so bad for you. Um, this is fun on multiple levels. Jared not only is president and creative director of Blitz Creative, which is a creative studio that works with brands and professional athletes. He's also an old friend of mine. We went to college together and it's been way too long since we reconnected. So it's great to see his smiling face on the screen, even though it would be better in the studio. And he's had a really interesting career path, lots of fun stuff to dig into. So Jared, do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about how you got where you are now? Uh, yeah, I would, I would love to, and it is an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, I still look at you and see Jackie Weinman and not Jacqueline Beck. So there's a, there's a bit of that as well. Identity <laughs> shifts. We could talk always, about that too. <laughs> it's always, it's just always fun. You know, it's, it's always, it's always fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jacqueline, you'll probably remember when we were freshmen in the same hall, uh, at, at Emory. Uh, I was a basketball player, but I was more more interested in sort of the creative in the creative side of the world. I think basketball was a means for me to get into an, an world class institution like Emory. I would definitely not say that my uh, my high school experience was filled with uh, the the level of of academic commitment that you would have needed to get into <laughs> Emory otherwise. Uh, but Emory was a, was a fantastic institution. Met met great people there. Uh, was really interested in the creative side. They happened to have a a really cool uh, uh, film and TV studies department that while I was there was transitioning into uh, being a, a really fully creative department, which focused on production. Not to get into the semantics of it, but studies is more of the theory of film, uh, whereas production is like, that's the fun stuff. You know, especially if you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you're in college, it's like you want to go out and make things. You don't want to just, you know, watch and read and learn. So, I was able to get my hands dirty in college, uh, just making a lot of fun little things. I mean, I started just making things for my friends, uh, trying to make people in the dorm laugh, um, and which you know sometimes successful, other times not as much. But that's part of the learning process. Uh, but I think the biggest challenge in, in college at that age was figuring out, um, you know, how to break it to my parents that they were spending all this money and I was going to become an artist. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think ultimately, ultimately. Uh, you know, it required it required uh, me obviously having a, a primary major, which was psychology, um, and then having the secondary major, which was film, uh, which I which you know I'd be lying if I said I didn't put all my time and effort into. And I also you know took a really serious approach to to the creative industry, which was that I needed to apprentice, I needed to learn how this how this works, um, and. You know, I did so. Unfortunately, that was with a couple people that uh, their names, their reputations have taken a turn since I worked for them. One was Scott Rudin and the other was Harvey Weinstein. Oh. Uh, but I did have really good experiences working for those companies uh, in my summers and off time from memory. Um, and, you know, learned a lot about, you know, TV and film production. Uh, I went, I moved to Los Angeles right after school heart of the recession. I, I did 22 months of unpaid internships, which now um, would have landed several of my former employers in jail, uh, but, or at least on the other end of a, of a pretty sizable lawsuit. But, you know, you got to look back at 2009 and, you know, there was, uh, especially in, in Hollywood, there was a huge um, dump of talent. And then, but there was still a need for cheap talent and well, there's nothing cheaper than free. So, uh, I did a, long, a lot of unpaid internships, uh, but eventually I ended up uh, on the assistant track inside of the Hollywood system. So that's similar to, um, you know, if you've ever watched Entourage, it's, uh, I always say it's, uh, it's, I believe his name is Lloyd or the Lloyd character. Of like course, Ari, Lloyd. Ari's assistant. Yeah, that's Ari's assistant. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that was me like deep into my twenties. Uh, that was like two, like I was like 26 still like, you know, knowing like all the coffee orders for all the people on the team, um, who were above me, but you know, that is life in, in LA. I mean, if, if you're in the creative industry, uh, you really do end up having to put a lot of time in on the apprentice side of the house. Uh, the money sucks. Um, you know, the job is a bit of a grind, but you know, you get your opportunities and that's what I, you know, I, I, I took advantage of and, and I tell everyone who's sort of coming up behind me or even peers of mine is, you know, utilize when someone says to you like, Hey, we need like a social, some, we just need to capture some behind the scenes social content, you know, it's like own it and make it yours, you know, and, 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 and take the same approach to it that you take to a feature film. So I was an assistant. I, I ended up coming, moving up the ranks inside of Warner Brothers. I was a consulting producer at a company at the time called Lynn Pictures. It's had several names since then. But, you know, in that process, I had worked on some cool shows like House of Cards. I, you know, worked on a movie called Gangster Squad, the Lego movie, um, you know, helped out on Sherlock Holmes uh, iterations uh, and, and ended up working on 17 TV pilots as well. Only one of them went to series. It was called Forever. You'll never remember it. Uh, it was one season on ABC. But during that process, I had working inside of entertainment, traditional entertainment, I kind of came to see a divergence that's really actually sort of playing out today, which is that you had your traditional sort of TV studio network model um, that was changing rapidly. Uh, things were moving to digital. The digital players were getting bigger at the time. Um, but what was happening is there was a shrinking of the creative people that were involved in a process. So, you know, people would always, I'd come back to New York, you know, and, I'd, and, and, uh, my friends and family would be like, oh my gosh, I love, you know, uh, Mad Men or I love, you know, like some show on HBO. I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I'd be like, yeah, well you can't like move up inside of that show. That show is like a creator and like two writers at most and like a super tight room. Um, whereas back in the day, you know, if you were a young person in your twenties, you could kind of get into a, a room, you know, at a show, like what they call it a room, but a writer's room and a show like friends or even the lesser known show, like Caroline in the city. That was I used to like love that show. I feel like I was Great in third show, grade watching like, that show. <laughs> there you go. Like, but that's how it used to be in entertainment is like, you could get in, you'd be, you know, chasing coffee down in season one, season two, you're taking notes for the writers season three, you're given some ideas season four, you know, they're actually letting you write an episode, co-write an episode season five, you're a writer on the show. And that's kind of like how you'd grow your career. But when, as the room shrunk on cable, uh, it, it became harder and harder for young people to kind of like find their moment and get their, those opportunities. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It just became a smaller and smaller chance. So I kind of picked my head up and saw that, the most creative work, the most interesting stuff. And I'll say there was another anecdote at the time where I was working inside of Warner Brothers and we were getting ready for a pitch for some TV show. And I was like, well, let's go make a sizzle reel. Let's, let's go film like a version of this and that, that we can bring in and help pitch the show. And I'm literally inside of this production, a production company. And they look at me like, I'm crazy. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, we don't film something for this. And I'm like, that's insane. Like why, like the, the, the world that we were currently living in, you got to remember this is like 2012, 2013. It's like the world we were living in was like, everything was happening on YouTube. Everything was happening in digital. Like, like people all over the world and country were making, you know, really cool, interesting videos that they could then, you know, put into something else, make bigger, getting millions of views, et cetera. So I couldn't believe that that was what our process was. So not to belabor the point, but I made the shift to a company called Platinum Rye, um, I was their first in-house creative. I took the process that I had learned diligently from my from my mentors and my and my and the leadership that I worked with inside of the studio system of developing story, developing characters, uh, and understanding how to bring you know great storytelling to life, even in a digital advertorial context. Platinum Rye was the world's largest buyer of commercial talent at the time, um, and I was their first in-house creative. We had a brand entertainment department. It's like, again, like kind of going back to what I was first saying is the last bit of budget in a project, they kind of give me and say, go film something, go make something work here, you know? And that was my first opportunity to really get creative with it. And it was also my first opportunity to be in that, the mix where you could be in the middle of advertising and entertainment, which kicked everything else off. So that was the early stage. And, you know, feel free to ask questions. I, you know, like it's, it's, I, I think of my career in three stages. It's uh 
lead up to being in entertainment and sort of getting the background and understanding of how to develop and create content. Then there's the period of time that I was inside of major holding companies working in advertising. And then there's the now, which is the last four or five years that I've been running um, my own company. You're like Picasso. You have your own little phases through your entire career. Something like that. There's so (laughs) many themes that just came up in what you're talking about. And I want to start with this idea of learning by doing and grinding, because I do think that I I don't want to say that the pandemic exacerbated this, but I think it's been going on for a while where there is somewhat of an expectation that you start a job and you just expect to be able to have your voice be heard and get everything you want in the job. And you're a great example of you took almost two years with no pay right? You were doing the unglamorous work and yet you were learning by observation. And so what would you say your major takeaways from that time period are? Wow. That's great. It's a great question. There's so many. Um, I think honestly, like the first thing I'll say is, is, is treating people the right way. I know that's a weird thing to sort of say in this context, but especially in, in, in entertainment, which is, similar to, you know, finance and a bunch of other fields that are just highly competitive. Um, you can really get caught up in a doggy dog kind of world and, you know, and you can, you know, sort of, it's almost like pledging too, where you can, because you were treated poorly, you could treat the next people poorly. And I never bought into that. I, I always was like, no, um, I think you can be, you can be an, a strong advocate for yourself. I think you could be tough. And I don't think that that toughness requires you to be, mean or, or needs you to be, you know, degrading of other people in the process. And, you know, I brought up to those other people that I worked for earlier. And whereas I respected the hell out of both of them creatively being Harvey and Scott, I detested the way they treated people. Um, and, you know, inside of the organization, there were people who mirrored the the way that those guys treated people in a negative way. And then there were people that rejected it and were fantastic people at both organizations. And, I looked more, it's funny because I, I even, you know, when I used to show up at job interviews, they would, people would look at my interview and be like, wow, Harvey and Scott, they'd be like, you must be tough. And I'd be like, you know, it's not really like that though. Like, it's like, I actually didn't learn anything from those guys and how to treat people. I learned from the people around them who saw that terrible behavior displayed on a daily basis and still chose to be good people and treat people well. So I'll say, I'll put that out there as I think it's a good start. I think to answer your the actual question, um, I was talking to my wife the other day. We were joking because it was raining and we were driving on the other side of the hill. And one of the first kind of shots on goal I had, the first opportunities I had was I was working at a company called Reveille. They were I was interning there as an unpaid intern, um, and I had the benefit of working for this British executive named Robin Ashbrook, uh, and he just didn't understand the American intern system. So he was kind of like. I don't care like what they say you are like, I like you and like, we're getting along and we're creating cool ideas together. So you're just going to come be my guy. And I was like, great. Like, this is perfect. So we literally within four months developed this show together, brought it to cartoon network, got it sold. It was called while your parents are out. It was like a silly show, but I'll never forget that I was on set and it was my first time on set and I'm an intern and you know, the director is like, we're shooting something and the director who is in charge of set, which I should have known, but I was, you know, I was whatever, I was bushy, bushy tailed, whatever you want to call it. And I basically start giving him feedback, like, and I would started basically like almost directing the talent, like next to him. And he kind of like looked at me like, and it was, it was truly like, if I had like a welcome to like Hollywood moment, it was like that moment, like the guy looked like he literally, like his eyes set me like through the wall behind me and it was just like, don't ever say like do not talk to the talent <laughs> and it was kind of like and then but to his credit I, I i apologize i don't even remember the guy's the director's name but to his credit he kind of pulled me over after he's like look you have a good eye for this stuff and i want you to you should speak up but you but there is a there's a process and you need to respect the process because when we're on set the director's in charge and he was 100 percent right and to this day i direct now myself and it's like 
you need to be open to the possibility that a you could be incorrect or realistically that someone else next to you creatively has a good idea but there also has to be a, a system in place you know like it can't just be like a free-for-all and you know i felt like there were i was so lucky that i had people like that who encouraged me to keep speaking up and saying things within the right channels right, right. within the proper channels and i say to young people all the time who i work with i'm like and i say it with people on my team i'm like pull me aside. Let's speak out of earshot from the client. You know, like, see, I always say, see something, say something. Don't, if you see something like, and you think it's, this is not it, or, you know, Oh, like, I don't know. Like I, I can't even tell you, like I was on massive Hollywood sets where I would see something and I would, you know, flash forward a couple years forward from that. I'd pull aside a producer. I'd pull aside the director and just be like, Hey, like this is going on in the background. I don't know. And they'd be like, Oh my God, thank you. Good, good catch. Those are for young people in entertainment. Those are your opportunities at first. It's, it's how do you engage without being, for lack of a better word, annoying and disrupting a process, but showing that you have a, a voice and that you have an opinion and that you can engage in these types of conversations in a meaningful way. You say entertainment, but I think that's so applicable to so many industries because I grew up in finance, right? It's the same exact thing. You're not going to give game time feedback. I call it game time feedback. You know, right. you watch you watch a tennis match, right? You're not going to go down to, to Nadal and whisper in his ear, you know, while he's serving or anything like that. And I feel like one of the worst things you can do is give game time feedback, which seems like that is the lesson that you learned, right? There's a time and a place. And that to me speaks to context and almost an element of emotional intelligence, which I think gets back to exactly what you were saying about before in treating people right, right? Which I want to ask a question about, but you bring up a really excellent point about observing and learning from mentors is not only about learning how they do something, but learning how you relate to that. So do you like the way they do that? Do you want to show up that same way? How do you want to be in relating to people? And are you okay with that system of operating? So when you say treat people the right way, what does that mean for you? I think in in general, it's, it's, especially in, in my business, it's giving them purpose to everything they do. So like, the, I didn't like bosses that, you know, would just send me on a coffee run or something. You know, I did demeaning work, like really demeaning stuff for someone with a college degree to be, you know, rearranging pillows at a, at a Hamptons home of a producer that they'll never go to is ridiculous. You know, like it's just, I, and I could, I have long, long lists of these types of bizarre requests, you know, and, and some of them are, but the right kind of boss would would put it in the context of why it matters, right? It's sort of like, I need you to go get this coffee because I'm here having an extraordinarily important conversation that requires you to do this, you know? And then as soon as you come back, I want you to be part of that conversation. Yeah. But this is what the role is for you right now. It's not bring a coffee, close the door, we'll never hear from you again. It was, and this is Jen Gortz. This is my I, my... I, I was sort of my longest assistantship. I think I was assistant for her for almost three years. She's now like president of Fox, which I am completely not surprised by wow. because she treats people well. She's extraordinarily demanding, like like to a degree that was borderline, like, I don't know if I could do this. Um, but she always gave me a sense of purpose. And she always followed through on her end of the bargain, which was like, you're going to do the dirty work because you're my assistant. But then once you've completed that, because I need you to do that to make my time more efficient, which helps our company make money, which keeps you employed, employed yeah. you know, then you get the opportunity to give your feedback and be deeply involved in this process to, to whatever degree, you know, you can be, then it's up to me in that, you know, standpoint to then how involved do I want to be? Do I want to read each script? Do I want to go through each cut? Do I want to sit in on the edit? What do you want to do? That goes back to your initial question about, you know, taking your shots. So I think in terms of treating people well, I think it's all about giving them a sense of purpose, um, understanding, you know, what their kind of broader goals are in that respect to say like, hey, but but also like, you know, being fair in, in those scenarios. 
The other thing I say to my team all the time, I, I attribute this quote to Colin Powell, but I don't know if it's actually him. But I remember him saying that, you know, I have ridiculously high expectations, but I give my team, you know, every amount of support that they can meet. And like, that is, that's how I lead my team. And they know that, which is like, I have absurdly high expectations. That's how my boss has always treated me. I actually think it's a sign of respect when somebody has high expectations for you. It shows that they see something in you and they see something in your, the ability of your work that maybe you don't even necessarily see yet. Um, but I don't leave people on an island. Like one thing that I hated in entertainment culture is the, I don't know, fucking figure it out. Like that's one of the worst things you could say to somebody or just get it done. You know, like I don't care how you do it, just get it done. You know, like it's something that I think is an easy thing in a stressful moment to say to somebody and we're all guilty of it. I'm not perfect. Um, but you know, like it's, it's that type of stuff where I think that when you're understanding where this person sits, you're understanding what their goals are, you're understanding that you actually need to be the person as a leader to support them in that mission and provide them with the context and the support, then it's like, okay, now I have super high expectations for you to go and to go and do this. Um, and, and the, the last thing I say is, is, uh, is, you know, and I know this has become more in vogue, but I, but I did see it with the most successful bosses that I worked with and the most successful people that I was around was making sure to always be critical of the work and not the person. And like, and, and I keep that to this day. It's like, I will be brutal about somebody's work, but I will never, ever, ever cross it into the person. And I felt like it's like, people in, in, in our industries and in high achieving industries, like we have to have thick skin about our work. People, you'll never last. I've seen so many creatives in my industry burn out or just get stuck in their jobs and, you know, never really do anything because they're too precious about their work. And I'm like, no, you have to be open to critique your work. Now it crosses a line. If someone says like, you did this because of the work is this way because you are this way. Right. That's not helpful critique. Don't work, you know? And that's another thing about treating people correctly is it's like, I would say like, you know, if I brought something back to my old boss, to Jen, for example, like she would never say you're lazy. She'd be like this, this, this that you just did was lazy. And there's a, and it sounds, it's semantic, but it's really different. You know, there's a huge difference. And I'm a really big stickler on word choice and it can make all the difference and how you orient yourself to those words. It's a little psychological, but it's very true. You're lazy is attacking your character. This work is lazy means that it's not as full or robust as it should be there. It's not as complete as it should be. And I just want to recap because you in that answer had so much amazing content from giving people purpose in terms of seeing their role in, in the broader goal, right? In terms of training and taking time to make sure that someone knows the appropriate way to do something instead of just go figure it out. And that reminds me of the the saying, an ounce of pre- prevention is worth a pound of pain. Because I can't tell you how many people I talk to who are like, oh, but they shouldn't need my two minutes to tell them or brainstorm with them wh- how to do this or what to do. Those two minutes can save you hours of pain on the back end. You also talked about respect and how high expectations are a signal of respect to you. I happen to agree wholeheartedly, um, being critical of the work and not the person. And the, the, the crux of all of this that I love that you talked about is a great boss, a great job. It's not necessarily easy. It pushes you to your potential. And so, Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, as you say, that's, you know, like we, we, you know, we're now a sports creative agency. Like I hire a lot of people who are athletes and, you know, JJ Reddick says that it's like your job is not to be the best ever at what you do. It's to be the best. It's to make the most of your potential. Right. And like, I think that that's a really important way to think of things as an athlete, as a, as a, as a worker, as a, as a parent, like, it's just like, it's just, you have everyone has potential, like, build on that, like, you know, like do what you can do to maximize that potential. And I think as a, now as an employer, which was a weird transition for me, because I had literally never managed anyone in my entire life. So then I start my business and now I'm hiring people and now I'm managing them. It's like, 
I, all I have to work off of is the things I hated and the things I liked, you know, <laughs> it's just, and, and one of them is, you know, again, like making, trying to get people to under, see their own potential, see and understand what they can be doing um, and help them get there because it's not something that, you know, we all just can, you know, there's no like shooting in the driveway of like work, right? It's like, it's just, there's, you need teammates, you need input, you need like support, (laughs) you need to, you need to just put the, put the miles on the road, right? You just have to get that experience, which is, I think is, is, uh, is crucial. And I think it was to your original point where you were asking about sort of younger people and wanting to, you know, and and sort of being expected to sort of come in and be a specialist already and do the same thing. But I don't know. I mean, that I, I have not, we don't hire that way. We don't hire like roles. We hire people who, you know, we believe can, can have, do a lot of different things and can help in a lot of different ways and then can grow into specialization should they decide that they want to do that. So let's talk about this transition a little bit from being in massive mega corporations to leaving and starting down the path of entrepreneurship where, you know, to use your words, you had never managed anybody. And now you're, you know, having to show them their potential and help them reach their potential and thinking about things from a completely different perspective. How was that shift for you? Yeah. So it was, uh, the transition is is fascinating. It's, it's made more fascinating as I look back on it. So I, I, you know, I did have some managerial experience, not inside of traditional corporate America, but I used to run these New Year's parties every year, and I'd have a whole team of salesmen, basically, salesmen and women, um, who would be out across New York City, and they would sell tickets, and then at the end of the year, like, the end of the party, it's like I would be determining sort of like compensation and all these types of things, and I'd manage a lot of personalities during that process. Short bursts. But I can't even tell you how much that, how actually valuable like running a party was from client servicing to managing vendors to, you know, managing a location. And then obviously the people pot process on your team, because like you once as I kept growing in that party up to a thousand people, it's like I'm not selling a thousand tickets on my own. So, you know, you had to have people working for you. So I actually did learn a tremendous amount of that experience, but never inside of corporate America. I was at uh, an Omnicom agency, Platinum Rye, for let's call it three, three and a half years. Then I was at a company called Advantage, which I don't think exists anymore, but it was part of Octagon, which is, will always exist, which is one of the biggest sports marketing agencies in the world, uh, at, at um, IPG. So IPG, Omnicom, those are two of the top holding companies, massive uh, advertising holding companies, corporations. Um, and, you know, inside of those systems, like, again, like anything, you, there's a lot you learn. Um, on the good side, there's a lot you learn on that. You're just like, I don't think I would, I would necessarily replicate this. I think one thing that's tough inside of traditional agencies that I worked in and I saw, um, was again, this, this sort of what I call is like a, almost like a churn and burn of young people, which I didn't love. Um, because I always felt like it was a little unfair and I thought that it was ultimately at the end of the day, like wasn't really like beneficial to the growth of the organization which I learned over time was most of these agencies that are inside of other larger agencies and our our holding companies, they're not actually that growth oriented. They're more just, we have X amount of dollars coming in from our retained clients. There's opportunistic money that can also come in, but realistically we just need the staff to execute at the lowest cost possible. So you have, so it's top heavy, right? You have the leadership of the agency, then you have some people sort of in the middle that sort of like claw their way up. And then they, they're really, sorry, it's top heavy with compensation, bottom heavy with employees. So you then have this sort of sub 30 year old classic group of people that, you know, are kind of basically told like, well, this year you're an assistant manager. Next year, you're a manager. Next year, you're a senior manager. Next year, you're a se- associate producer. Like, and it's just, they have these BS titles with, you know, two to $5,000 raises or whatever. And they kind of figure out how to do that. Um, and I just didn't like that, that system. I was a creative director of both. Um, my compensation was fine. Like it was, it wasn't great compared to what it could be. But what I started seeing inside of that was I was like, okay, there's two things going on here. One is you got a lot of people who are, you have, sorry, you have a small group of people that are eating up a lot of the revenue from this company that are not actually doing the day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. And I think for any young person in any organization, 
you're in some degree, you're going to feel that. Now, sometimes you're like, all right, that guy doesn't do all the work, but if he walks out the door, so does our biggest client. So, tough, you know, that's life, right? right? Um, that wasn't always, that wasn't the case in the organizations I worked in. It was more so like, you know, you, you kind of had this group of younger people that were felt like we were doing it all. And we were sort of the ones out there. So I started looking around and then the treatment of the younger, the, the much younger people, sort of like the early mid twenties, because bear in mind, I was closer to 30 at this time. Um, those folks were being treated in the sense that like, it was just churn and burn. It was how long can we get them to work for suboptimal wages? And then eventually they get tired and leave and go somewhere else. You know, yeah. they get tired of the, the half, the half point raise on their, you know, on their whatever each year, like they are just like, all right, it's time for me to leave. And what I, what I didn't like about that was I felt internally there was no, even though we, it's all those companies, they claim that there's these great growth opportunities, you know, you start here and then you're the CEO one day, you know, like it was, it was actually that I wouldn't say it was a lie because I don't think anyone was um, nefarious in their approach, but it was something that had just never borne out. Like it was just, it never born, it was never born out. We'd lose all this fantastic talent out into the wilderness, which could just be part of being in one of those types of companies, or it could be, um, you know, I guess just a, just a flaw of the system. So there's a long way of me saying is that I was looking at it from a revenue perspective being like, why am I going to be on this little carousel, you know, like of, of just sort of like where each year I hope I get a little bit better of a horse, but I'm still on the carousel, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of it is, do I think there's a better way to manage this incredible talent that's younger than me mm-hmm. in a way that I could actually build something um, and keep this talent as opposed to just churning it out? Uh, and that was and that was kind of the theory. I started in, I was talking to Sarah about it, my wife the other day. It's like, I started building the idea of my company in 2015. I was like, I got to go and do my own thing. I have this theory of the case. I want to do branded content but I want to do it premium and I want to treat it like storytelling. And I know that I can do this. I was too early. Like I, I thank God I didn't leave that first company to start the business. Then 2016 is when I get the job at advantage. I didn't know what I'd be working on. Then all of a sudden I'm running Hyundai's NFL content across all their platforms. I'm running uh, their college football program across 11 of their major schools. I got to run Microsoft special Olympics, content program for a, for a year, which was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I had no idea those things were around the corner in 2015 when I started this right. the process of being like, I want my own thing. But while I was at Advantage, I kept in the back of my head, I was always like, I know I want to do this. I know I want to do this on my own one day. And I'd say to like anyone who's interested in, in entrepreneurship, it's like, you know, we have a mutual friend, Zach Suchin, who once wrote a post that like starting a business is not a big bang. It's it's more like a baby. It's like a faint heartbeat in the womb. It's just like, it just starts in this. It's not, it's just a kernel of an idea and it requires nutrients and it requires time and it requires thought. And I, I spent probably six years developing that really, you know, I love Sorry, that. I look like you were saying something. no, I, I love that because the idea for my business came in early 2018 and I didn't launch it till 2022 and it percolated and I had Mm -hmm. conversations and I was scared and I would outline things and then I'd lose my notes and then I had to go find my notes again. And then finally it all just culminated with a massive opportunity that presented presented itself. And I just jumped off the bridge. Right. I want to go back to this idea of, you know, observation and seeing what you like and what you don't like, because that seems like a recurring theme that's come up today. And as you're setting up your business and as you're hiring, as you're thinking about how you manage these people who ultimately work for you, how are you setting systems in place to make sure that they are content, that they don't burn out and it's not burn and churn? And how do you set up a system because it sounds like you're really focused on people with dynamic skill sets and personalities that can eventually specialize over time. How do you know what's best for them to go into? It's a loaded question. I realize that. It's a lot. Yeah. I think it's, I think there's a, a personality. Um, there's a lot of like, you know, per, there's personality. Like I thought that I would sort of like, 
I had a lot of misconceptions about starting a business too. One of them was like, oh, well, I'll just have this this team of just strivers. You know, everyone on this team is just going to be a fucking killer out there, you know? Because, like, that's how I saw myself, you know? It was just somebody who was like, I would work into the evening. I would overexert myself on a project, you know? Like, I would kind of, like, go the extra mile. And I was kind of like, well, that's what I'll just do. I'll just, I'll, you know, and I, I didn't put that on paper, but it's, like, in your brain, you're like, you know, you, you kind of want that. What I've actually found is, yes, I've found people for my organization that are just unbelievable at punching over their weight. You know, like I think that I've done, if I've done anything well, it's, it's identifying, you know, people with, I wouldn't necessarily untapped potential, but just the, the potential to really grow into roles. I mean, my, my current head of production at our company, who's overseeing several million dollars a year in production is literally two and a half years removed from being my thousand dollar a month intern um, coming off of, an unpaid internship where he was just a research assistant on a documentary. Like, and now he's literally running our entire production outfit. He's extraordinarily smart. His name's Tim. He's, he's a real person. Uh, he's extraordinarily smart. Uh, he's extraordinarily driven. Um, he has a capacity to learn. Uh, but I've given him a ton of room. Like, I think that's been my biggest sort of in, in terms of growing him is I'm like, is I give him a lot of support. I give him a lot of room. Um, and I always make myself available to him in that respect. I think in terms of him, like not burning out, you know, we have, we have an unlimited vacation day policy at our company. And I think it's in some respects, it's good. In some respects, it's bad. The reason we have to do it is as a small business, just carrying the load of, uh, vacation days on your books is really tough. Um, it, it ends up becoming a pretty large liability. So especially in the state of California, it just, it, it's the, every, most companies move to unlimited. My problem with unlimited is that the data has shown that people actually end up taking less vacation days when there's unlimited. So I forced my company, everyone on my team, they have to take at least a week of consecutive time at some point over the summer. I'm basically literally just like, Who, when's your week? Just tell me when your week is that, yeah. you're, that you're gone. I think it's critical. Um, we also have a thousand dollar benefit at the company for international travel. So it's anyone who wants to travel international, they get a thousand dollars to go do it. We have some other perks around national parks and, uh, and things of that nature. Books are another one where I encourage people to just be reading in their free time. We cover their books. Um, but I push people to take days, you know, in production, in the world that we're in, we will shoot weekends, you know, we will have a really intense end of the week. And I'll say to people all the time, I say two things. I say, if I'm next to you and we're in the office together, I'm pretty perceptive. And I'll be like, you need a day. Like, you need a couple yeah. days. Like, go, you know, Tim, it's go out. He lives on a boat in the arena. Go surfing. You know, go relax. Like, you need you need a, you need a couple of days to recharge. But some of my other teammates that are remote, and this is actually a conversation I had with a teammate of mine a couple of weeks ago, which is like, actually two of them, was it's like, if I'm not seeing you every day, I can't be the one to tell you when it's time to take a day. Like you got to tell me, you know, don't let it, don't like, you know, and, and I have an extraordinarily open relationship with all of my uh, employees and I call them my colleagues. I actually don't even refer to them as my employees. Cause I just think again, like on a respect level, it's just like, yes, they work. They work with me. I don't think of them as working like for, for me. You. I feel like that's very, uh, yeah, that's very like uh, Mad you know, guy sitting up and <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's madman. It's like I just don't like. It's like we're, we work together. Like we're it's collaborative. But but I do say to people, especially remote workers, is it's very hard. I, you know, I, on our team, we've been having this conversation a lot with remote. I know this wasn't the initial question, but you were asking about like that's where I've actually found my biggest challenges as a manager in terms of managing the psychological health and well being of my team is that they know that I'm striving and I'm dry and I, you know, care deeply about the business and I'm pushing things forward. And I think that they try to work up to my speed. Well, if they live on the East coast, that means that they think that they should be emailing, texting all this stuff well before I wake up. Right. But then they also don't want to sign off until I'm signing off, which is around six, seven, eight o'clock at night in LA. And I'm like, and I've said to them to the person, like that is not sustainable for your life. Like that's not sustainable for your life. I, like, but I don't have, it's just, uh, it's so hard when you're managing people remotely, like, and I'm in the weeds on something like, I don't have the ability to be like, Whoa, wait a second. It's nine o'clock for you. Like get out of here, like, you know, turn off. So, you know, that's, it's been a challenge. It's something that we're, we're working on. Um, we're trying to really make sure that our team, 
utilizes their days off, um, sets proper boundaries with me and our team and says, hey, you know, we, we have people add, you know, doctor's appointments and blocks in their schedule that's like, do not contact me kind of periods. Um, because remote is, is very hard, well, um, it, very, it very hard. Sounds like you have done a very good job at letting everyone know who you work with, that everyone has a voice and that you expect them to use it. And I would venture a guess, psychology major, that it goes back to that first experience of directing the director and the talent on the set all those years ago, right? But it goes back to context and a time and a place and also recognizing that everybody is human and everybody is people. And so in a really poetic way, it seems like a lot of the lessons that you've learned early on in your career have really influenced how not only you set up your business, but also the way in which you deal with the people that you work with. And I'm looking at the clock. I am shocked how quickly our time has flown. Absolutely shocked. Oh, wow. I want to rapid fire two questions to you as we wind down. The first, we spent some time talking about how you can help people reach their potential. What advice would you give to a new manager who has a team or is working with someone that they really want to encourage to, to be their best? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's the, the challenge in it is that it's, it's, you know, bespoke to, to everyone, you know, I have an employee or I have a, a colleague, you know, I just spoke about him where it was very clear that he cared deeply about production. So, you know, for him, it's, consistently giving him more and more opportunities to kind of prove himself in the production realm, um, you know, opening him up to other opportunities. So we've had other, other companies have reached out being like, Hey, we have a capacity need. Do you have a producer you could lend us giving him those opportunities? Um, and then encouraging him to consistently learn outside of the, uh, of the office advice. My dad gave me when I was, um, when I was an unpaid intern, I actually turned down three paid jobs. And the, at the time, and that was the best decisions of my life, actually, like thinking back on it, because they were jobs where I would be taken advantage of and not really, it wasn't going to fit. But my dad gave me advice that I stick with this day. I give this advice to everyone is that, you know, especially an early job, you should, you should be seeking out three things, right? You should be looking for um, knowledge, network, and know-how. So knowledge obviously is, are you in the business? Do you have, are you, are you at a, are you at a place, are you at an organization where you're getting access to the daily news of what's happening in your, in your field? And it's not, and, and, and sorry, the caveat says my dad said your first job should have two of those three things at a bare minimum. So are you basically, are you in the heart of it? Are you in the beating heart of the industry? Do you get at, that's knowledge, right? That means that you're getting that access point. Uh, network. Are you building that professional network, which as we all know is much easier in your twenties than it is in your thirties and much easier in your thirties than in your forties. So it's, it's something that is crucial at that, at that early stage. And the, the third piece is know-how like, which is, are you actually learning how to do the thing that you want to do, you know, that you care about and want to do. So for me, you know, the first job that I ended up taking actually did fulfill two of those three things, which is why I took it, which was a, to be, a, you know, to, to be an assistant in a TV studio. But what I think about when you're talking about encouraging full potential for your, for your, especially younger talent, I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how to get the full potential out of a 45 year old because I don't manage that. Like I manage, I met my entire team is 31 and younger, 30, 32 and younger. So this is, these are the people that I manage. Obviously I have vendors that are a little older, but which is a different story. But what I push them on is I say, I say, look, I need like these are at this company of our size, there's going to be a blind spot in each one of these. Like I want you to, if you're getting two of those three things here, I want you to focus all of your other time on getting that third. And how else can I help you do that? So if it's, are you feeling like you're not talking to enough people at this company, then it's networking. So do you need a exp small expense account so you can be going and doing coffees and, and lunches and stuff in your spare time uh, while you're here at this company so you can keep growing your network? Great. Let's do that. Okay. Some, another employee might say, actually, 
I'm talking a million, I'm, I'm already doing a hundred thousand calls a day. I've got a robust life outside of here where I'm meeting people in the industry. I don't feel like I need the networking. I'm learning on the know-how side. I'm learning how to do what I want to do. My actual issue is like knowledge, right? Something like that. I, so it's like, I'm just feeling like I'm, I'm only on these small pro these projects. I want more. I'd say, great. What do you want? What can we do? Is there a symposium? Is there a conference you can go to? Are there, you know, are there online classes? Like what else can we do to help fill that for you on that side? Um, and then on the know-how side, that's a question that I, that I would, you know, in, in terms of our organization, I'd say like, that means that you're not in the right fit currently for your job, right? So it's like, if you're telling me I'm on the talent side of your business, which we do, we do talent procurements, we buy talent on behalf of brands, like, and you're saying, I, I actually want to be doing more production. That's more the know-how that I want to learn. I'd say, hey, full stop. Like, let's figure out how to get you onto that side of the house. Because like, I don't want to be, I don't want to push that rock up a hill. Like, if that's not where your passion is, like, let's get you into that space and start getting you skills um, into that role. So that's kind of how I, I think it's a baseline approach to it. Well, it sounds like you're giving autonomy and support where needed. And that helps people reach their full potential. So next question, take it however sure. you will. What do you know yeah. now that you wish you knew back then? Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I will take this in a different way. I don't wish I knew this because I would never trade my journey that I went on for anything. Every single stop in the journey, all the people I worked with, good and bad, taught me so much. So um, the one thing that I definitely didn't know was, but I now understand its value and I'm so just effing grateful to my 20 plus year old self is how important it is just be kind to people. Mm. Like my reputation in our industry, I, I just hired a guy the other day or not the other day. Now it's in September who had been, somebody reached out to me, a, a close friend of mine. I, 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 in entertainment, you get these reach outs all the time. I'm sure in finance, same thing. It's like, I got this cousin, I got this friend, I got somebody who yeah. wants to talk to you. You're the one person they know in this space. And you're like, okay, like, of course I took every one of those calls. I gave every single person advice. I gave every, and, and you could look back and I, and I remember the time some people were like, man, that seems like a waste of time. Or, you know, you, I knew people who felt that way or inside of the organizations I worked at, I was always close with the younger kids, always like the younger guys. Like if I was four or five years older than them, I'd go to lunch with them. I'd ask them how they're doing. Like we'd hang out, we'd chat. I'd take an interest in their life. I didn't do it for any broader reason than similar to what I was saying earlier. It's how I actually felt pledging, which I was like, and how I felt being on sports teams is like, just because we treat the shit we used to, that I got treated like shit as a freshman doesn't mean I want to treat you like, and I always was friendlier to the young yeah. kids. Now you want to get into psychology probably has to do with the fact that I always wanted a younger sibling because I loved my brother was an amazing older brother. And I always wanted like a younger sibling. So I have like a million of them, but like, <laughs> I just, I was so <laughs> like, I just took time with, with people. And at the time it's like, it wasn't, I can't express to you enough. It wasn't transactional. I never thought any of I never was like, Oh, one day, 10 years from now, this will pay off. Yeah. But I can't even tell you like building this business on my own is, is a bullshit line. I did not build this business on my own. I built this business because I was genuinely good to so many people along the way that they like that this, like I just said, this guy, he came back. I had given him advice nine years ago. He hit me up out of the blue. He's like, Hey, I took that advice. We were talking like, you were so kind to me nine years ago. I'd love to catch up. And I was like, I didn't remember him. I didn't remember. It was one well, of a thousand people I spoke to, it, Yeah, you know, but it goes and now to he's show working. you now he's working. Now he's working. He's now working for me. He's now like literally our head of production on, in New York. And he's a great guy. I love him to death. Like he's, his name's Max. He's fantastic. But it's like, uh, that's what I'm saying is like, it's like, if I, I didn't do it because it, I had no transactional reason. I had no feeling that this would pay off in the long run. I just was like, I just feel like this is the right thing to do. And every one of our clients, every opportunity that I have going forward is somebody bubbling up from my past. Who's just like, Oh, I remember you, you were like a good dude. You know, like it's, and it, I think it goes back to the old adage, like no one really remembers what you say. They may remember how you make them feel. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
just be kind, just be kind to people, especially when you're younger, like, and then they won't necessarily remember everything about you, but they'll be like, I just remember you were a good guy. And like, voila. But you like, know what? That hey, goes like, so far. And I think that you've taken that to heart. And I think the way you've set up your business and the way that you treat the people who you work with now goes to show that. And I, I love what you said about not being transactional because people can smell inauthenticity a mile away and people can smell when you're having an agenda a mile away. And sometimes it just comes back to being a good person. Um, and I have to say yeah. selfishly that it's amazing to hear your stories and see your success because I love seeing good people succeed. And it's amazing. I think they by accident put me in your dorm room or something freshman year of college, if I'm remembering correctly. And we had to figure it you out. Were literally like right upstairs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And no, I think I was in your dorm room. They originally like assigned us to the oh, for real? Yeah, guy side of the hall, whatever. Um, but it's amazing when you think about how far we've come and it's going to be so incredible to see you continue to climb. And so if anyone is interested in getting in touch with you or learning more, how can they? Yeah, so it's um, they always can email me. It's jb at blitz, B-L-I-T-Z, creative, dot L-A, like the city of Los Angeles. jb at blitz, creative, dot L-A. And yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know, that's my last, that's my parting thing is just be good and be good to younger people. Like, because especially when you're in your 20s, like someone who's 24 to 28 feels like this person is, you may as well be from different planets, but like that person can be referring you business, like, Literally, like, within, like, three years. Oh, like, yeah. So oh, it's yeah. just, um, but just be kind. Like, I don't know. Like, that's that's always been my my vibe, so. Yeah. It's know. very Bill and Ted. Be that excellent works. to each other. Yes. Like, it's it's the right thing. It's just the right thing. It's the right thing it's to do. It's the right do. thing to do. And don't, and don't, you know, think you have to perpetuate bad culture. Like, or that, you know, you, you, and you can always disrupt something that's, that's negative. Like yeah. you don't, don't have to keep, you don't have to play in that. And I don't care. I mean, I know young kids aren't listening to this, but I still the kids who were in high school all the time. It's like, why, why does the freshman carry the, the, the gear? Like you're a senior, you're a leader, carry the gear, carry the you gear. know, like what's the point? Yeah. Just cause you did it, carry the gear, like be a leader, you know, like that's what leaders do. Love it. Like they don't, they don't perpetuate that culture. Love it. Well, Jared, it has been so fun having you here. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Worked Up. Look out for new episodes on Tuesdays. As you can tell, we have great guests coming down the way. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. And please connect with us on Instagram at Jacqueline Beck Consulting on our website, www.jacquelinebeckconsulting.com or email us at info at that's Jacqueline, J-A-C-L-Y-N, Beck, B-E-C-K. See you next time.